Capital Allocators is brought to you by NASDAQ Solovis. As an allocator, every investment decision you make has a direct impact on the financial well-being of your stakeholders and beneficiaries. But with a fragmented portfolio view across your public and private market holdings, you can risk making decisions without the full visibility of their impact on the overall portfolio. Organizations need a solution that delivers a consolidated portfolio view to let the investment team shift their focus from operations to analysis. A solution that helps create context faster and take the right actions sooner. NASDAQ Solovis is a software platform that unifies your public and private market holdings data to create a single source of truth. It empowers investment teams to understand the impact of every decision with accurate and reliable information. Solovis delivers transparency and insight into performance, liquidity, and risk across an entire multi-asset class portfolio. You can learn more and request a demo at nasdaq.com slash solutions slash Solovis. That's nasdaq.com slash solutions slash S-O-L-O-V-I-S. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Michael Batnick, the Director of Research at Ritholtz Wealth Management, author of the Irrelevant Investor blog, co-host of the Animal Spirits podcast, and recently author of his first book, Big Mistakes, The Best Investors and Their Worst Investments. Our conversation starts with Michael's atypical career path, his arrival at Ritholtz, and his blog. We then turn to stories from his book about Ben Graham, Jesse Livermore, Jack Bogle, Stan Druckenmiller, John Maynard Keynes, Charlie Munger, and Chris Saka. Lastly, we discuss how Michael applies the lessons in his book at Ritholtz. Michael is a widely followed rising star in financial social media, and our conversation is packed with nuggets of timeless investment wisdom. I hope you enjoy the show. And if you do, this week, if you're single and walking down the street while listening to Capital Allocators, and look up and see a beautiful woman or man coming your way, what better way to get the conversation going than saying, excuse me, but do you happen to know about Capital Allocators? They might respond, that sounds amazing, and start a really interesting conversation. Who knows? It could be the beginning of a beautiful relationship. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Michael Batnick. Michael, great to see you. Thank you for coming in and having me on. Why don't we start with your background and kind of very entertaining, highly unusual story of how you got to Ritholtz in the first place. I was not one of the people who was reading the Wall Street Journal at 13 years old and putting their bar mitzvah money into the stock market. I had no interest or knowledge or anything about the stock market until, I don't know, probably like my late teens. And I didn't pay attention to school, so I was a complete disaster educationally <laughs> in terms of my grades. I, you know, I did okay to get into college. So I got dismissed after one year at Indiana University. 
I think I got a 0.9 and then a 0.8. I just, I lived there, but I didn't go to school. 0.9 and 0.8 as in? GPA out of four. That's so not strong. Pretty bad. <laughs> and, you know, I was obviously very young and it was not something I was proud of. Certainly not something I am proud of. Were you trying to do that? I mean, how do you, I, I've actually, with great inflation, it almost seems like you were short yourself. <laughs> so I have, honestly, I have no idea what happened. I look back at the period of time and I don't recognize myself. Was I rebelling against like my parents' divorce when I was young? I don't know. Was I pissed off because my mom was was sick, maybe? Or was I just, you know, having fun and, and enjoying my life and being an immature kid? Maybe. I, I don't really know what was going on in my head. Not much. <laughs> so I I came home and, and I did okay and I got my grades up at a community college and then I went back and and then I dropped a class and I was on academic probation. And I got kicked out again. And that one really hurt. That was that was tough. I felt like I let down my parents, myself, and it was just humiliating, of course. So I went to Queens College and I got a degree in economics and I graduated in 2008 and the world was going to hell. And I said, oh, this is why people pay attention to school and why they take their education seriously because now what do I do? And I was lucky enough, if you want to call it lucky, to get a job right away. But it was at a insurance company that I, I had no idea. I didn't know the first thing about anything. And I see people in suits and I was impressed and there's a lot of action going on. And I thought all was, all was well. You know, I, I landed on my feet, but it was a horrible experience. What was the role? The role was call people you don't know and sell them products that they don't want to buy. And it was just a lot of making shit up. <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, my colleague Blair Duke and I wrote a post about insurance and I and it brought back memories I guess I had buried this because I sort of laughed when I thought about it. I used to say to people, hi, my name is Michael Bannock. Does that name ring a bell? And the obvious answer is no. And I, oh, I thought it might because I've been in your office a lot talking to your colleagues. Who have you been talking to? Well, I'm sure if you were a client, you could appreciate the fact that I wouldn't just you know give your name to people. But And that's what I heard. And so that's what I did. And I would call myself a fiduciary because I didn't know anything. And the market was was obviously cratering. And I was trying to sell... Uh, whole life insurance policies to, to kids because I, I didn't know anything. And obviously, looking back, I'm so like humiliated and embarrassed at some of the things that I did. I didn't. I ended up selling no policies to anybody outside of my my father. Um, and I bought a policy for my wife. But it was a really bad experience. But I, I learned a lot. And one day, my father introduced me to a patient of his. He was an advisor. And he started sending me stuff from Ed Yardini and Dave Rosenberg. And I knew nothing, but I knew that this stuff was interesting. And so I would go into the office every day, probably for six months. You know, nobody gave a shit what I was doing. I was paying rent there. That's the type of job it is where you, they, you, you, you were paying rent. They don't pay you, but you pay rent to work there. So nobody cared about me. So I was going in, you know, pretending to have the fun with my ear and I was reading about the market. So I did that every day for six months. And the only reason why I didn't leave sooner was because I, where was I going to go? At least this was like a library for me where I would just go in and have some quiet time. And so eventually I, I you know, it was getting uncomfortable and awkward and I hadn't sold anything and people just sort of <laughs> staring at me like, what is this kid doing? So I left and I couldn't get a job for obvious reasons. My resume was a disaster. I didn't know anything. My father was a dentist. My mother was, you know, just worked in an office. So I, I didn't know anybody. So I would go to the library every day and I would drop my wife at the, off at the train station and just go learn. And uh, I fell in love with the market. And, and so that was my backstory. But obviously, there was a lot of stumbles along the way and hurdles. I started trading and following people on Twitter and just learning the ropes. And I was close to like getting a job at Starbucks. I didn't know what I was going to do. And then you know, I had some job opportunities that slipped through. And man, I was just 
you know, obviously like, oh, what did I do to myself? Here I am and I'm paying for the mistakes that I made. And so I, you know, long story short, I met Josh Brown at the train station and Josh at that point. So I, I just found out that we lived in the same town. He was writing a blog, the reform broker and a lot of the stuff that he was writing about really resonated with me because I was seeing the exact same incentive structure and the insurance side. And I used to think it was maybe less nefarious, but, but I've come to the realization that maybe it's not because if you're selling somebody, you know, a shitty stock or a mutual fund, whatever, they're giving you, you know, 10 grand. And so, sure, that sucks to lose that. But when you're selling life insurance policies to somebody and you're asking for giant commissions or uh, premiums, I should say, that has like a real, real impact on their life. But anyway, so, so I met Josh and I basically tackled him and I said, here's my chance. <laughs> and he was nice enough to give me a few minutes of time. And I saw he, he tweeted out a few months later that he and Barry were hiring and the rest is history. When did you start writing your blog? I started writing in 2014, maybe. Do you think of it as a theme at all? Yeah, it is. Sure it is. And most of everything that I write just basically comes down to investing is really hard. And I think somehow people still underestimate that. So that is certainly a, a common theme through everything that I write about. And how did that turn into the idea for writing a book? So I said to Josh one day, I have an idea. I'm going to write a book about the best investors and their single best investment ever. And he said, no, 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 no. The best investors and their worst investments ever. And I was like, oh, damn it. You're right. Of course. It's so obvious. And that was it. I latched onto it right away and I got going. And how did you think about the process? I had never done anything like this. I was kicked out of college twice. I don't, you know what I mean? Like I don't have, I never had the attention span to really put my, my head to the grindstone. I'm pretty sure I butchered that line, but so, so it was tough. It was just me going to the coffee shop every weekend and uh, my baby had just been born. So, I mean, I guess that was like a convenient excuse to get out of the house, but so it was probably like almost uh, a year and a half, just every weekend and maybe halfway through three quarters through, I started to get frustrated because I was starting from scratch with every chapter and I was rereading books that I had already read. And reading with purpose, not just skimming, but like looking for facts. And then I would have 10,000 words of notes that I would have to cut down to a 3,000 word chapter that was entertaining. I knew at the time that I would look back with fond memories and I will and I, and I am, but it was, it was work. I looked at this book through the lens of the average person. So I can't teach hedge fund managers anything. You know what I mean? Like they know far more than I ever will about how businesses are valued and stuff like that. But I always have the average person in mind whenever I'm writing. Well, I'd love to dive into some of the stories and some of the chapters and we can just sort of go through what you learned along the way. So why don't we start at the top with Ben Graham? The point of that chapter was just there are limits to value investing. You could be the best business analyst in the world and you might have a great long-term track record and things might be okay, but there are limits to value investing, obviously. His returns were good, but they were not like extraordinarily good. Now, he did beat the market by almost 2% a year for a decent amount of time. So they were very good. Don't get me wrong, but they weren't like, oh my God. And he got crushed in the depression like everybody did. But what was interesting about him in particular is that he was positioned pretty conservatively going to the crash, but things got so cheap where businesses were worth more dead than alive because there was a real question, like, were these businesses going to exist in a right. year? So he went in early and he couldn't resist the values and he got destroyed. That notion of kind of catching a falling knife, we all like to think we can pick the price at the bottom, pick the manager at the bottom, whatever it is. I did a ton of that. And one of the reasons why I felt confident to write this book, like who the hell am I to, to write a book about the mistakes that all these giants have made, but I made a lot of them. And now I didn't, I never blew up or anything, but I 
caught so many falling knives. I bought stocks at the 52-week low list. Like I did the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing because it's very tempting, right? You think that a stock that went from 90 to 40 is cheap. Well, maybe, but maybe there's a really good reason why it's now. I was that line. I think it was David Einhorn who said, yeah, the way, the way a stock goes down 90%, it goes down 80% and then gets cut in half. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. How about Jesse Livermore? Yeah. So this was my path in discovering the markets. The first book that I read was The Intelligent Investor. I was so excited. I remember like reading parts of it to my mom and just because I just had to tell somebody. And the whole Mr. Market stuff especially really resonated with me just because it's plain English and you, you, you get it. So then I tried to do fundamental research for lack of a better word. It was not fundamental research. I was looking at PE ratios. Um, and so I tried investing that way and I quickly found out, oh, that's pretty hard. And then I read uh, The Little Book of Common Sense Investing by John Bogle. The, the part about Buffett putting 90% of his money in the S&P 500 index, well, that really resonated with me. But that's so boring, right? Who wants to do that? Like Nobody opens up a, an E-Trade account and buys an index fund. So then I read Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. And I was like, oh, here it is. That's me. <laughs> I am this guy. And of course, everybody feels like a hero when they read that. Like they're going to go out and they're going to do this because Jesse Livermore really had a way with words. And you know, 90% of the market sayings are, are attributed to him, especially the trading ones. The irony is that he couldn't even follow his own rules. And he made and lost several fortunes. And every single time he came away with this soliloquy and these beautiful words, and every time he just couldn't do it. So, you know, whatever the saying is, it was not my trading, it was my sitting, and the trend is your friend. And yes, they make a lot of sense. But then when you see dollars coming and going, investing is very distracting. So it's just, it's funny that he is like held up as this great trader and he was really good at making a lot of money, but he was really good at losing a lot of money too. And he ultimately took his life because he couldn't adapt to the new regulations that were in place. You mentioned Jack Bogle and everybody knows him for Vanguard and the index funds. But I love the story you told in your book about what happened with him before he started Vanguard. Man, what a, what a interesting story he had. So during the go-go years of the late 60s, when rapid fire trading was all the rage, he was managing a mutual fund or, or I don't know if he was necessarily pulling the trigger, but he was maybe the president of the Wellington Fund uh, or chairman or something like that. And they were a conservatively positioned mutual fund, one of the first four mutual funds, I think. So they had a long-term track record of excellence, of not getting too high or too low, of just you know sort of steady eddy. And they brought in a group of young managers from Boston and basically blew the fund up. And they went from you know top decile to lower to lowest decile. And this is a true story. It was in uh, maybe Clash of the Cultures, one of his books, where he spoke about he started a, a fund based on technical analysis. And obviously, uh, it didn't do so well. That's Jack Bogle. <laughs> yeah, Jack Bogle. <laughs> King of uh, technical analysis. Technician. <laughs> I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. 
Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. NetSuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. You mentioned with Jesse Livermore this notion of knowing all the right things to say, but then not being able to follow it. And, you know, the story of, of Stan Druckenmiller's notorious mistake in the bubble is a good one just like that. Yeah. Stanley Druckenmiller, I think one of the best quotes about him is that he knew he knew investing better than economists and he knew the economy better than traders. And he was just sort of this unicorn that put up absolutely ridiculous numbers, whatever, 20% a year, 30% a year, something crazy. And towards the late 90s, like Julian Robertson, he was early on the wrong side of the, you know, on the short side. But so he started to go along some of these stocks in, in 99. And one in particular... He bought a stock called Verisign. I think he put $200 million in and then it went up a ton and he doubled or tripled his position. And then literally the next day, the market topped and, and this thing lost 99%. So I think he lost, you know, I'm making this up, $3 billion in six weeks, something like that. And when he was asked by a reporter, what did you learn? And he said, nothing. I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I, you know, I let my emotions get the best of me. And that's another common theme throughout this book is that there are certain you know, mistakes that individual investors are prone to. For example, extrapolating the past out to the future is probably a common mistake that we all make, certainly on the individual investors uh, and institutional, but more, mostly uh, retail. But one th- common theme that we all make mistakes on is the emotional side. Like None of these mistakes were because somebody used too aggressive a, of a growth assumption or an inappropriate discount rate or didn't understand the business. It was always like either overconfidence or you know, failure to admit that you're wrong. It was always on the emotional side. Yeah, there's this notion with behavioral finance that we all read about it and we understand it. And so we're really happy to understand that it applies to everybody else. Right. But yeah, and your chapter on Keynes is sort of another good example of that. Yeah, in terms of that, like we think it applies to everybody else but ourselves. Nobody thinks they're emotional. Everybody thinks they're above average and, and nobody thinks the mistakes apply to them. But so Keynes created the modern monetary financial system and was if Benjamin Graham was a father of value investing, well, then he was a father of macroeconomic investing. You know, what do interest rates in, in England do to currency in Argentina? In which way does the wind blow? And he had a fund in the Great Depression and again got blown up uh, like everybody else did. And he wrote, in my opinion, the best chapter ever on investing. I don't know if it's 11 or 12 in general theory, but. Everything that you hear from Howard Marks and um, all these guys really started with Keynes in this chapter. And so what he did was he completely threw all that stuff to the side and said, I have no interest in entering a beauty contest where the results are not who is the prettiest, but who do other people think are the prettiest going to be? And that's the hard part about investing is that like, if you want to bet on the Golden State Warriors, well, you're not going to get very good odds, right? Because everyone knows they're going to win. Um, same thing with horses. But when you're buying a stock, you don't necessarily see the embedded expectations. You only find out after the fact. So you don't have the odds. And so he, anyway, he completely rewired his brain and became a a bottom-up value investor and delivered tremendous, tremendous results, which he was probably one of the outliers where he said, okay, what I 
thought worked doesn't, let me try something else. Yeah, I love that notion that the guy who created this famous line about markets and beauty contests realized, okay, he understood the game he was playing before other people did, but still too hard to play. Yeah, so I can't imagine the mental flexibility especially with a man with an ego the size of his, was, was able to do that. So that was really impressive. That oh. stood out. So the, one that, the chapter that baffled me the most was the one on Charlie Munger, because as far as I could tell, there weren't any mistakes. Yep. Yeah, he got crushed in the 73-74 bear market like everybody else did. And I guess you can nitpick because he was so heavily concentrated in this company, Blue Chip Stamps in particular. But you're right. He didn't make any mistakes. He you know he lost money when everybody else did. So maybe I would like a mulligan on that one. But the point still stands. And I think the the point of that chapter is that everybody gets crushed. Um, so again, I don't think Munger necessarily made a mistake there. But if you're going to invest and you, you, know, you expect to have at least decent returns, you are going to get destroyed. I don't care if you're trading or you're just buying the index fund, whatever you're doing, there will be times where you are feeling pain. And that's just part of it. And if you don't like it, buy T-bills. And, if you, you know, and, and even that comes with a lot of pain. I think they went 50 years with negative real returns. Yeah. So. So let's just do one more before we turn to your business. Chris Saka. So even if you achieve perfection, which they effectively did in their venture capital fund, it's still not perfect. Yeah. I think um, probably regret is one of the most poisonous things that enters into investors' brains, either selling too soon or buying too early. And, and the, the problem is that those, those moments stay with you, right? And you always remember what happened last time, even if it has no applicability to today or tomorrow. So in his case, he was able to sort of laugh it off because to your point, he has like the best you know, results of all time. But so whether it's Bitcoin or the pot stocks or whatever, there's always going to be something that, that you don't own that's kicking ass. That's just part of it. But he actually said no to three of the best potential investing opportunities. I think it was um, Airbnb, Snapchat, and Dropbox. It's not like they came to him. He looked at them and said, nah. No, no, no. And you know those are gazillion percent returns. Yeah, so you're not going to get everything right. Yeah. You've written the book, causes you to really think about all these lessons. How do you apply them to what you're doing for your clients? Yeah, it's a great question. So we understand how hard it is to beat the market, right? I think like we're pretty familiar with that. Decisions need to be made, obviously, what, you know, where you're investing in and what you're choosing to get your exposure. So on the one hand, we want to do as little as possible. The reason why it's so hard to beat the market over the long term is because if you're trying to get market returns, well, then, like I said previously, you're going to have to experience 15 years of no returns. And oh, by the way, in that 15-year period, has 240, 50% drawdowns for you. So it is supremely hard to beat the market. It's also really hard to just match market returns, even if that's all you're trying to do. So with the bulk of our clients' money, we do strategic asset allocation, where we're just trying to get you know global market returns for the most part. But then on the other hand, we, we have to be behaviorally aware if that's like what we're talking about all the time. So how do we come up with a portfolio that will de-risk in the event that we do ever have a bear market again, which will, in theory, allow them to stay invested with the bulk of their money as it's experiencing the painful drawdown? And are those at odds? I don't think so. I, I don't think that investing is black and white or it has to be all active or all, all passive. I think that there's a lot of room for both, obviously. And I think about Gene Fama winning the Nobel Prize and sharing it the exact same year with Bob Schiller, diametrically opposed views. Markets are efficient, don't do anything, everything is priced immediately. 
on the one hand and on the other hand, what are you talking about? There's bubbles all the time. Can you not see this? Yeah, it's not a bubble. Yeah, it is. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. So we um, could see that there there's arguments on both sides. So that's what we try to do. And I think it's very, very important that we invest alongside, alongside of our clients, the same models that they do. So And so how did you implement that? So you talk about investing sort of the global portfolio. Is that just public market securities? Yep. Yeah. So we don't do anything on the private side. And is there a reason why? Yeah, I just don't think we have the capability to, we don't have the expertise. So how have you, how do you guys decide to implement? So, okay. So we do use primarily indexes for, for the core and then for the tactical model. Listen, we're not a hedge fund. We are an RIA and we manage money for people that are going to retire and, you know, normal everyday people. And so we don't, I think the, the, probably the most important thing that we do there is set realistic expectations. If we could really, really shrink the gap between what they expect and what they receive, then they're going to be happy. So we don't overpromise. This is not an alpha strategy. This is you know behavioral more than anything. I, I fully expect it to underperform. I know all of its limitations. We show people the monthly returns and we show there's a lot of red and there's a cost, right? If you want to miss a 30, 40% bear market, guess what? You're going to have to pay for it in one way or the other. So I do my very best to communicate to the advisors to throw as much shade as on the strategy as possible. Because when you show, you know, the back tests, which I think are, bu- you know, back tests are bullshit, this looks amazing. Of course, we're not, nobody's going to implement a strategy with a bad back test. Now we have, you know, years now of live results and it's been fine. But again, I think just being extremely transparent about what this is going to do and its limitations. So, you know, I have stats up the wazoo of how hard this is. So there's, there's whatever you do, there's nothing easy, but I think it's really important. I tried to data mine. I tried to look for the perfect thing and I just, uh, I ripped a lot of it up and, and just said, we're just going to keep it simple. And I think that's, that's great. I could explain it to a 10 year old. And to me, that's, that's compelling. Is there a hypothesis for how you go about the tactical portfolio? Yeah. Probably the simplest thing to explain the way the markets work, whatever, you know, I don't care if it's stocks or bonds or whatever. Rising prices attract buyers and falling prices attract sellers. And it is literally that simple. And I don't care how many computers or geniuses get involved. That alone can never be arbed away. So we are simply measuring price uh, using a few moving averages and a few other inputs. Very, you know, very simple. And, and that's it. So is that effectively a momentum strategy? Uh, well, I guess technically it's trend following because we're not using momentum. We're not using like, you know, returns over 12 yep. month periods of time, but, but, you know, tomato, tomato. It would get you to the same place. Put it that way. We've, we've looked at it. So the, the other part of your business and why everybody knows you guys is this prodigious amount of research and writing you put out. How do you find time to do it all? We're lucky. Uh, and I think we're unique in the sense that of the four partners of the firm, only one is a full-time financial advisor. So if I was... So a lot of people ask, how do you find the time? Well, first of all, this is my job. And I take it very seriously. And if I make it look easy, well, that's great. But I think, you know, I, I work a lot and it's, it's nights and it's weekends and it's all the time, but I love it. I don't, you know, it doesn't feel like work to me. However, if I was a client facing advisor, it would be impossible. You know, I, I, you can't talk to clients, build financial plans and do the writing and the reading that I do. It would just be impossible. So I'm very lucky. I literally cannot imagine being in a better scenario in terms of, you know, having the work life balance and having the freedom and, and just loving the people I work with. I am very, very lucky, especially considering where I came from. And, and what do you see of the impact of this presence on social media, on the business now and in the future? So on the plus side, it's, it's amazing that people come to us because they read what we write and, and they're fans first and foremost. And then, uh, you know, nobody comes ready to open an account. They go through the process with the financial planners and they're either good for it or they're not. You know, we certainly are very careful about only bringing on like-minded uh, people, but they're self-selecting. Now that's amazing. 
a lot of this is done over the phone side unseen after going through you know a pretty fairly rigorous process but on the other hand these are people that are reading financial blogs and we're not the only people that they're reading so it's not easy come easy go but we might have to work a little bit harder to keep them focused to keep their eye on the ball to remind them of why they hired us in the first place and how's that played out it's well you know marketing conditions have been pretty okay now there's a flip side of that it's like why am i paying you because i could just you know, yeah. buy the cues or whatever, but it's been it's been good. And, and there was never like this grand vision that we're going to do all of these things, and we're going to blog, and we're going to do videos, and then the people will come. It just it really has evolved that way. And is now part of the grand vision now for the next couple of years. Well, for me personally, I just am focused on keep getting better every day and just keep doing what we're doing. And you know, if we see fat pitches, we'll swing. So I I, I don't know about five years. That's not that's not like how I think. Yeah. All right, let's turn to some of my favorite closing questions. You probably know these are coming. What's the most surprising talent or hobby you've had, either now or in your past? I don't have many hidden talents. Hobbies, this is so boring. I don't know. I played sports when I was a kid. Like I was a very sort of boring person. I don't know. What sports? I played basketball and football. Mostly basketball. That's what I did after school. Was there a big highlight somewhere along the way? (laughs) No. (laughs) All right. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? Maybe like this is sort of a joke, but like the $10,000 invested in type thing. If you invest in $10,000 in, come on. 55 years later, you'd be- Yeah. I mean, I I think that looking at the growth of a dollar, you know, a lot gets lost in the charts, the the emotions of it and and what it took to hold on. I just think that like people that are, oh, if I I should have bought Amazon, I knew it. No, you didn't. If you did, you would have bought it and you probably would have sold it after a 20% gain anyway. Yeah. <laughs> what teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My mother always said, treat people the way you want to be treated. And that's a pretty good one. Pretty good rule of thumb. What information do you read that you get a lot out of that you think other people might not know about? Well, I'm so public about what I'm reading, so I don't think there's anything hidden. I like reading books that were written at the time. So like right now, I'm reading Black Monday, which was, I think, from 1988. It's a great book. I, you know, I somehow I never read it before, but like I love John Brooks. He was writing back in the day, so that, I enjoy stuff like that. If you could meet one person, dead or alive, shake their hand and just say thank you, who would it be and why? Maybe Peter Bernstein. I don't know. I, this would probably change every day if I was asked, but I just he was just an unbelievable polymath, just an insatiable hunger to learn and get better every day, and uh, he was just incredible. All right. Last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? And you're still young. I'm still young. Yeah, I'm young. I'm young. But the answer to me is nothing because things change and you grow up. And what I think is right for me today, I wouldn't have done anything differently. Not in the sense that I ended, you know, that everything is okay and I have no regrets because of course I have regrets. But what's important to you changes. So what's important to me 10 years from now will not invalidate what's important to me today. So I don't know that there's anything that I have a really great answer to that. I just, uh, I take life one day at a time. Sounds so stupid, but I, I, I am a very present person. All right, Michael, what, what do you hope happens with the book? It has surpassed all expectations in terms of the feedback that I've got. There's been, you know, a few nasty comments, but whatever that, you know, that comes with the territory, but it's been great. I, it's been well-received. I was very careful not to ask too much of the reader. I think it's an easy read. It's basically... 15 long blog posts, but it's been great. It's, it's been great for my exposure. It's been great for my learning experience. It's, it's been a really good thing. Fantastic. Michael, thanks so much for taking time. Thanks for having me. 
Before we get going, I'd like to invite you to join the Capital Allocators Think Tank, a premium content subscription service where you can discuss each episode with me and the guests alongside allocators of sizable pools of capital. You'll also gain access to the library of transcripts of past episodes. Visit CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com and click the premium content button to sign up for either a corporate or individual membership. Thanks for your support. Thank you.